Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. You know, when we began this series in Luke, I mentioned that we would be learning many truths from the lives of specific individuals. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, Anna, John the Baptist, the centurion, the good Samaritan, Many others, you know, individuals that we've considered through these 18 chapters and said, oh, here are some lessons we can learn from their lives, from their examples. This morning, we're looking at Zacchaeus, short Zacchaeus, who had to climb up in a tree. And what we're considering is what happens when we encounter Jesus, or more, more accurately, more specifically, what happens when Jesus encounters us? Now, the Bible says Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, probably of that region, um, certainly of Jericho, maybe, you know, but he was the chief tax collector there in that space, in that area, right? And so he, there he is in Jer Jericho where Jesus comes in. Just let's, you know, you've got to understand the background a little bit if you, if you don't already. Tax collectors worked on behalf of the Roman Empire to collect taxes from the people. So the Roman Empire that was occupying all of those areas, that had conquered those areas, they were imposing very heavy taxes on the people. And they would employ these local people, Jewish people, right, like Zacchaeus, to be tax collectors. And so tax collectors were working on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so if a person didn't pay the tax, all of the might and the military strength of the Roman Empire would come on you. I mean, the tax collector could say, hey, this person hasn't paid their tax, and boom, here they come with, you know, with the weight of the Roman Empire to make sure they can extract your tax. So Zacchaeus was, in that sense, a powerful person. Right? People wouldn't, couldn't mess with him. Tax collectors typically extorted their own people to take money for themselves. So let's say the Romans were telling 
the tax collector, you need to make sure that you collect a hundred denarii, whichever, whatever. And the tax collector would now say to the people, you have to give me 120. And they would keep the 20 for themselves. So they would extort the people. I mean, the people were already paying high taxes, but now the tax collectors would do something on top of that and then keep the money for themselves. So they were stealing from the people. They were actually taking money that these people didn't even, they couldn't afford to pay the tax even, and now here they are being extorted to pay more. So the tax collectors would extort their own people and take advantage of them. And for all these reasons, the tax collectors were usually reviled and hated by the people. So if you notice in multiple references in the Bible, you will see that tax collectors are equated with sinners. Sinners and tax collectors. And you think, tax collecting, why? I mean, but these are the things that they were doing, right? It's not like if, you know, anybody who works for the IRS is a sinner. It's not like that. I mean, they, I mean these guys were doing something that was truly sinful, right? It was wicked in that sense. Verse 2 says that Zacchaeus was wealthy. Now, the source of his wealth is, of course, through all this extortion and stealing and you know, through questionable means, but he's got all this wealth in his hand. He's, he's possessing all these things. And so he didn't have any material needs. He wasn't, you know, in having any lack. He wasn't the beggar by the side of the road. He wasn't, you know, lacking for anything where he was coming to Jesus or needed to come to anybody. He didn't have any, he didn't seem to have any incurable disease or anything that was plaguing him in his body. He didn't have any burning questions for Jesus. He didn't, the Bible doesn't say, he said, that he said to himself, if only I can get to Jesus and ask him what he means by this, that would be good. He doesn't seem to be interested in that either. And, you know, if you think about it, it doesn't seem like Zacchaeus would be a person who would be interested in Jesus. He's living his life. He's doing pretty well. He's, you know, he's happy to be extorting the people because he's wealthy. He's, he's doing fine, right? But here are three observations we can make about Zacchaeus. One, he was curious enough about Jesus that he wanted to at least see this man that he had heard about. He, he wanted to see, who, who is this Jesus? He heard Jesus is coming through. And he had heard something about Jesus, enough that he was curious to want to see him. Second, he was willing to take some trouble to see Jesus. Now, you know, you could get to a Big crowd and see everybody standing there. I can't see over there. It's no use. Forget it. And off you go. But he took trouble to go climb a tree. I don't know how easy or difficult that was. But he took some trouble to go climb a tree. Because he said, I, I want to see Jesus. And when Jesus spoke to him, when Jesus invites himself over to his house, when Jesus says, I'm coming to your house, the Bible says Zacchaeus immediately responded and welcomed him gladly to his home. Something was there. Something was going on. I mean, he could have said, really? I haven't cleaned up. You know, I mean, or really? Why do you want to come to my house? You know, I mean, do you know who I am? How come you knew my name? I mean, he, he doesn't say anything. The Bible just says he immediately came down and welcomed him gladly to his home. You know, it may surprise us sometimes to find out that someone who seems the least likely to be interested in Jesus 
maybe the most eager to respond to his invitation. We look at them and we say, ah, they're kind of all settled. They don't have any needs or, you know, they're not lacking for anything and they got all what they need. Uh, they're not interested. If I go to them and tell them about Jesus, they'll just go, ah, I don't need Jesus. Right? Don't we do that? I mean, we look at the people around us and we say, ah, they're not going to be interested. This person, oh, they, they're, they're in need or they're, you know, struggling with something. They'll probably listen. But this person, probably not. So we sometimes will dismiss people like Zacchaeus and he's a tax collector, chief tax collector. I hope he doesn't find Jesus, right? I mean, I, we ignore these people. We, we marginalize them or we, we, we sort of put them into a different category. We say, ah, I don't think they'll be interested. But Zacchaeus, he responds to Jesus' invitation. And I want to suggest to you that we have to be sensitive to that leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit. Because clearly, Jesus, who is led by the Holy Spirit, has a word of knowledge. He didn't stop on the way and say to his disciples, go on ahead, find out who the prominent people in the city are, and if you see this man, you know, whoever it is, come and report. And then the disciples came back and said, oh, there's a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus. And then they said, oh, and, and you know, we went ahead and, by the way, he has climbed up a tree. And he's, you know, just on your path, he's in the tree there. None of that happened. Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, with that word of wisdom, similar to, you know, other incidents that we read about, and I'll make another reference to a little later, he looks up at Zacchaeus and he knows who he is. He knows him by name and he knows what his condition is of his heart. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. Jesus intervenes. Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. Nothing would have changed for Zacchaeus if Jesus hadn't encountered him. Nothing changes for people around the world, most people around the world, until they encounter Jesus, which is why Jesus tells us, go to the world. The person that you don't think needs to hear, or the person that you don't think will listen, or the person that you think will ignore what you're telling them, go to them. Tell them. Speak to them. Because they need Jesus. They need an encounter with Jesus. And which is why we persist in prayer and reach out with love and exercise faith to share the gospel with others. We want the gospel message to be shared because you don't know who will respond to that invitation. But Jesus does. He knows that person. He knows what they need. He knows what they need to respond to. And so when you say to that person, here's Jesus, and they say, oh, really? And they just express even the slightest curiosity. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. Amen. So we want to tell people about Jesus because all of us need a savior.
a few weeks ago when we were learning about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son in Luke chapter 15, I referred to this verse that we read today in Luke 19.10, right, where Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we talked about it in Luke 15 and talked about the lost and the found and the rejoicing in the fact that we are found. But Jesus says very clearly here, Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And, you know, I mentioned then when we were talking about Luke 15, uh, I mentioned at that time that we often seek the lost only if the risk is low, you know, and that the benefit is certain. You know, not much risk in speaking to the person, they'll listen, and the benefit is pretty good. They're going to accept. They'll receive my word. They will turn to Jesus. Okay, then I'll go talk to them, right? And then what we do is when we do in fact commit to seeking the lost, we expect quick results. And we're very impatient. I've been speaking to this person for two days. You know. uh, I mean, we, we want quick results. And we want results. We want that person to make a difference, to, you know, to respond. We want them to say, yes, I got it. I, you know, if they don't, we're like, ah. And so if we don't see the results, we give up. Right? And we say a lost cause. This person is a lost cause. Zacchaeus fit very definitely in that kind of a category. I mean, people around him, what do they say when Jesus says, I'm coming to your house? They don't say, oh, what an opportunity. What a blessing that Jesus is going to go to his house. They say, how could he go to this house? Because Zacchaeus is a sinner. They are indignant with Jesus that he would go to Zacchaeus' house. Couldn't Jesus see that this man didn't deserve anything good? See, but Jesus looks at him differently. Jesus singled out Zacchaeus. And when he called him by name, he didn't tell him, he says, he didn't say, Zacchaeus, you despicable sinner, come down. Right? He says, Zacchaeus, I want to be with you. It's very similar to the encounter in John chapter 4 when Jesus asks the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well for a drink of water and engages her in conversation. He knew who she was. He knew what she had done. He had the word of wisdom to know what was going on, word of knowledge to know exactly what was happening in her life. And yet, he speaks to her. He engages with her. Jesus deals with us and with every single person in this world, knowing fully well who we are, what we've done, and what's in our hearts. He's not surprised. He's not, oh, you look so good on the outside. Oh, oh I did No, there's no surprise. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. So we don't have to come to Jesus and say, I don't think this person is deserving. I don't think this person will accept. I don't think this person will listen. No, we just come to Jesus and say, here's the person. We go to that person and say, here's Jesus. We just do it. Whether it's our roommate or colleague or a family member or whoever, we just tell them, Jesus. Jesus is what you need. One encounter with Jesus. A true heart-affecting encounter with Jesus can make a difference. Let me tell you about Jesus. Come to Jesus. And so, 
when Jesus comes to us, he comes to us while we were still sinners. He comes to the people of this world while they are still sinners. He's not waiting for us to become good and then come to us. He's not saying to Zacchaeus, okay, reform your ways, do what's right, and then I'll talk to you. He comes to us while we're still sinners. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5, and this is in the New Living Translation, it says, though, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Not our good works, as we've been talking about these past few weeks. It's not our righteousness. It's not our good, good deeds that are getting us into where God would hold us and have us. It's because of God's grace. It's because of his righteousness. It's because of what he has done. And so we come to him. No matter who we are and what we've done, we need a savior. We come to this Jesus. We need to be rescued from our sin. We come to Jesus. We need to be found. Those of us, all of us who are lost or who were lost, we need to be found. We come to Jesus. Zacchaeus may have had, at best, only a fleeting glimpse, a fleeting understanding of his need for Jesus. Some curiosity, something, things there. But Jesus knew exactly what he required and meets it. And when he encountered the Savior, when Zacchaeus encountered the Savior, he was transformed by the Savior. You know, Luke, Luke doesn't record what the interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus was. It doesn't say Zacchaeus said these things and then Jesus said this and then he asked this question and Jesus answered that and then he explained to him about the way of salvation. Nothing, it doesn't record any of that. But we do know that a transformation took place in Zacchaeus. And we do know that the transformation was complete because Jesus says, who, Jesus, who, who looks at the heart of man, not the work of your hands. You know, Zacchaeus says something and Jesus could have focused on just the action of the, or the action of his hands, right? The work of his hands. But Jesus knows the heart of the man. And Jesus says of him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus is testifying of Zacchaeus. I mean, you know, the world around you, especially after one encounter like this, if Zacchaeus said, I'm a changed man, I mean, you're going to be skeptical, right? You're going to say, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll watch you for another six months. We'll see, right? And, you know, the Bible does say you will know the tree by its fruit and fine, you wait for the fruit, you know, and so on. But when Jesus himself testifies and says, Today, salvation has come. Today, this man is now a son of Abraham. Then you can go, okay, got it. I am confident that a change took place in Zacchaeus. A man who had foregone his birthright. He was born as a Jewish man. 
He had foregone that birthright in order to exploit the sons of Abraham. He had now become reborn to become a true son of Abraham. That's why Jesus is emphasizing that. That's why, that's why Jesus is saying, today, he's a son of Abraham. He had that privilege. He gave it up. And now, in this transformation, he regains it. We who were spiritually dead have been raised up to new life in Christ and therefore adopted into the family of God and into the same family as the sons of Abraham. Now the Holy Spirit is at work in us to transform us, to continue to transform us. Into what? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Being transformed into the, into the image of Jesus is not restricted to just what we believe, because we have the mind of Christ and therefore we believe differently, we think differently. It's not just restricted to that. And being transformed in Christ Jesus is not just, you know, restricted to what we do, meaning because of the proclamation of the gospel, the Holy Spirit is attesting to it, and there's the work of the Holy Spirit that's manifest in and through us. So it's not just that. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit is meant to be comprehensive. It affects our body, it affects our soul, it affects our spirit. It starts with that spiritual renewal, but all of our being is meant to be different, changed, transformed. Everything changes. And he, Jesus, he, the Holy Spirit, affects how we think, how we live, and how we treat others. And in light of what we're looking at today, that kind of transformation, in particular, when we are transformed, we're able to set things right with others. See, when Zacchaeus is transformed, when he's saved, when he becomes a true son of Abraham, when there's a supernatural change in him, he does something that is not natural. He says that he will immediately give half his possessions to the poor. Not natural. Not, not what you would do. You may even rejoice in the transformation. Oh, I thank God that I'm saved. I thank God that, you know, I have been set free. I thank God that I have been restored. But you don't usually accompany that with, and I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. Right? Very noticeable contrast to the rich young ruler we just talked about in Luke 18. The rich young ruler who did everything right and kept the law did not think that Jesus was as worthwhile as his possessions. He was unwilling to give his possessions away in order to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus, who had not done what was right and did not keep the law, recognized that Jesus was worth far more than anything he possessed. 
And he said, I'm going to give it away. And then, you know, Zacchaeus doesn't stop by just giving away half of what he had. He commits to set things right with those that he has wronged. He doesn't just commit to return to them what he stole from them. He goes beyond that. He commits to give them four times what he had stolen from them. I have no idea what he did, you know, like when he stole from these people. I don't know. I mean, you, you take the hundred from the person. I don't know how he got to where he had more than four times that. He must have invested it or done something with it. Or I, but somehow, he's got so much money now that he says, I will put back, not just, not just I'm selling half my stuff and giving it to the poor. From the other half, I will give back to people what I stole from them. And guess what? I will give back four times what I stole from them. Wow. I mean, whatever he did to get wealthy or, or to increase that wealth. How many of us, you know, regardless of how convicted we are in the Holy Spirit would say, mm, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe I stole a hundred but I invested that. I grew that money. I put it in the right stocks. I did the right thing with that money and I have made a whole lot more. I'll give back something that I've stolen maybe, but to give four times back, why would I do that? Why would I do that? That's something that I gained, right? That's the way we would think about it. See, when God requires something of us. And he says, this is what I'm seeking. True justice, true mercy, true transformation. What God requires in terms of justice and love, Jesus enables by breaking the power of sin. What holds you to your possessions? What, what causes your possessions to possess you? Sin not God. Jesus breaks the power of sin. God says, here is true justice and mercy. And this is what I require of you, O man, that you would walk humbly and do justice and, 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 and be walking in the ways of God in this, in this, in what I have described. What does Jesus do? He says, okay, in order to do that, I break the power of sin. What God requires, Jesus enables, and the Holy Spirit empowers. God's saying, this is what I require of you. Jesus says, I break the power of sin so that it frees you to do this. And the Holy Spirit enacts in us, empowering us to obey. We don't just hear something from God and say, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm powerless to, do, to respond to this. No. We appropriate, we receive what Jesus has done for us so that we can, in fact, respond to the word of God. And then we receive, we are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we have the power to take this action that the Lord wants us to take. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father, working in us, enables us to do this. Transformation that is complete transformation that is whole in Jesus in this way.
when we experience the power of the Holy Spirit to transform our own lives, we also receive the power of the Holy Spirit to make restitution, to set things right. To go, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, to go to our brother or our sister that has something against us and to make things right with them so that we can reconcile with them. When the power of the Holy Spirit is working in us in this way, we're able to take that action. We're able to take that step. Reconciliation, restitution, restoration, all of these are possible when this transformation is taking place. So what is, what is this extent of this restitution and reconciliation? Uh, let me, you, you know, I mean, Zacchaeus' example of paying back four times, is that the norm? I mean, is that what we should be thinking about in every single situation? Well, let me share a few biblical principles and then we'll look at what does this really mean for us. In Exodus chapter 22, it's speaking about theft, you know, if a man steals or so on, and it says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So there's this idea from the Old Testament and that would have carried through and would have been understood by the people that if you are doing something that hurts somebody else, if you have stolen from someone, if you have caused a damage to them in some way, that you would not just pay back, but you would give them even more. You would be doing something that's compensatory, that you would exceed just even that amount to, you know, to, to do this restitution. In Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith or security or robbery, if anyone, if that is realized or understood, then they have to pay it back. They should restore it in full and add a fifth to it. So 20% more. They should, you know, add back to it and give it to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it talks about canceling debts every seven years. And then in the 49th or 50th year, the year of Jubilee, when all slaves would be set free and there was this cancellation of debts as a whole. So there's all these concepts, these principles in the Old Testament for sure that talk about restitution or being able to pay back, right? In the New Testament, there are multiple references. I just want to draw your attention to two verses, one in Romans chapter 12 and verse eight. And it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know one of the greatest reasons that you don't live at peace with someone? Because of a financial disagreement. You owe me money, you don't owe me money. You know, you stole money, you should have paid me back at this time. I mean, this is one of the biggest issues that takes place in families, in workplaces, so many other places, right? And the Bible says, if at all possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means do the right things even when it comes to all these points of integrity or ethical behavior. And if there's something that needs to be set right, set it right. Romans chapter 13, verse 8 says, Owe no one anything 
except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Set things right. Don't have any debts outstanding, except the love of God to be shown to that person. Fulfill the law by doing these things for this person in this way, in love. Right? So, all of these principles are there in the Bible that we would, in fact, be mindful of restitution. You know, it was interesting. I was looking up these topics and reading about it and so on. I was reading a number of articles. And you know, in 1996, Congress actually made a law. It's a federal law that restitution, that means restoration of something lost or stolen to its proper owner, is mandatory for many types of federal crimes, including financial loss or physical injury. That if there is those kinds of things taking place, Congress mandated a law that the, the guilty person, when they were found or whatever, they were supposed to make restitution. It wasn't just sufficient that you said, oh, this person did something wrong. They were supposed to pay it back. Right? Just, I mean, think about it. Why would, in our human sort of considerations, why would that be the, the law that we would want to adopt? I believe, and I, you know, I, I, would, I would say this this way, these are biblical principles that undergird our system of law even. That we say, you know what, there is a justice in paying back that person what you stole from him. And this is part of what the law of the land is. But right now in the U.S., there's a lot of talk of reparations. You'll hear this word, reparation. It's not just restitution. And reparation is the making of amends for a wrong one has done. You may pay money or you may do something else to benefit the person who was wrong. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of conversation going on right now, particularly about reparations as related to the slavery of African Americans. Very big topic. Lots of articles, lots of things that are there. Research it, look at it, read it. There are articles that speak for and against this topic of reparations. And if you look at most of the articles that are speaking against, they speak about the practical difficulties in identifying who to even pay something back to, how would you pay it, what would you do, and so there's a lot of debate about this. It's interesting that even though this is not happening at the federal level, at the state level and in local levels, there's actually a number of different things going on that are reparation related. Now, in the U.S., there's a history of reparations. There was reparations that were made to the Native Americans, right, to the indigenous peoples as such, or First Nations and so on, that there were reparations done to them or made to them because there was a lot of advantage taken of them and lands taken and all sorts of stuff. There were reparations made to Japanese Americans after World War II because they were interned and held you know, in camps and land was taken, all sorts of stuff happened. So there were some reparations that were made. There were other kinds of examples of reparations. So it's not that the U.S. hasn't done this in the past. The question is, what do you do in the present? How do you determine 
what to do. So this morning, I'm not giving you an answer to that question. I'm not trying to prescribe what the law should be. I'm not saying that it must be this way or that way, but I am challenging you to consider this. As children of God, when we know that there has been a wrong, how do we act? How do we pray? How do we take accountability to set things right? And in whatever ways that we can do that personally, in whatever ways that we can do that collectively, we need to. There are, there are different opportunities, different kinds of things that have happened, different ways in which we have to look at that. And so what I mean by this is that we have to listen to the Lord. There are no easy answers. There's no single prescribed method. There's, no, there's nothing that will say to us, do this on this, in this timing, in this amount, in this way, that's what you, that's it. No, what we really have to do is that we respond with a willingness to be led by the Lord and a commitment to obey what he says, no matter what. You see, Jesus didn't even prompt Zacchaeus to say, to do these things. He didn't say to Zacchaeus, okay, Zacchaeus, now sell up your stuff or give away half your possessions and everything that you've stolen, give four times back. He didn't say that. However, in many of our situations, God does tell us how to set things right, how to reconcile with somebody, how to bring a restoration of the relationship. God tells us, God shows us. And there has to be a willingness on our part and a commitment to obey that. It's not going to be easy. We have to be willing to admit wrongdoing. If someone's been wronged, we have to be willing to admit wrongdoing. We have to be willing to seek the restoration. And we have to be willing to confess the sins of our forefathers and ourselves. And we have to be willing to say, you know what? This was wrong. We've done something wrong. And then, many times, even when we're willing to set things right, a general willingness, we may still count the cost and we only do as much as what we determine won't hurt us. I have this much, I can give this much, or I can do this much, or I can reconcile with this person this much, I will let them this much close to me, I'll let them as close to me as this, but that's it. Because if I do anything more, it'll hurt me. Financially, emotionally, you know, it, it'll hurt me. So I'm not going to. But the willingness to be led by the Lord and a commitment to obey him is that we would commit to obey the Lord no matter what, even if it involves personal sacrifice, even if the other person may take advantage of us, even if there's no clear way to administer everything. We say, Lord, I'm going to obey you. Because after all, all this stuff doesn't mean anything. Only you do. Restitution may not be material. It may be a word spoken in love to someone who you have been not speaking to. It may be a confession of sin and prayer together. 
Yesterday in our fasting and prayer meeting, we were praying through James chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, which tells us to confess our sins and to pray for one another. And it may be just that. But this morning, as we're closing, I want to speak to everybody. And if you're listening this morning and you're hearing this, I want to challenge you that you would encounter Jesus, that you would listen to him, that you would invite him, that you would have him transform you. But when he transforms you, understand that he wants you to set things right. Husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, family members, church members, so much pain, so much division, so many things that go wrong in our lives because we have not been willing to set things right. But we say, Lord, you, you work. You have your way. You transform me. You change me so that I can set things right. And that becomes our point of application this morning. Very simple. We say, Lord, you show me. I can't stand here and tell you this is what you should do. Because for each one of us, it's something different. Maybe you need to set things right with a child, one of your children. Maybe you need to apologize to your child. I've had to. I've had to go to my child and say, I'm sorry. I, you know, I shouldn't have done this. I did this in my own ignorance or in my own sort of understanding. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe you have to bear some physical or material cost to set things right. Maybe there's a family member who feels very wronged. Maybe there was a transaction that your sibling was involved in and feels like you cheated them out of, you know, they didn't get the right share. So many different examples, so many different cases. You pray, you ask. I cannot prescribe from here what you should do, but you can ask the Lord. Don't wait to say, or don't wait till they come to you and say, they wronged me. You say, Lord, how do I set things right? What should I do? How do I respond? You know, this morning, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together, communion a fellowship with God and a fellowship with one another. It is a beautiful, wonderful opportunity to ask the Lord who we have to set things right with and say, God, help me. Even as I participate, even as I commemorate the salvation I have received through the body and the blood of Christ, as we declare that we have been transformed because of what Jesus did on the cross, as we participate in the communion with the Lord and with our brothers and sisters in a manner worthy of the Lord, let's ask the Lord to make the example of Zacchaeus relevant and real in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we learn from each of these characters in the Bible. And Lord, a chief tax collector an unlikely person that we would, Lord, possibly ignore or not pay attention to. But Lord, you had a plan 
and you intervened. You had an encounter with this man and changed his life radically. You changed his life permanently. Lord God, thank you for these stories, for these examples. And Father, I thank you that you caused Zacchaeus to set things right. Father, I pray that in and as much as we are able to, Lord, in the ways that you direct us to, in the leading and guidance of the direction of the Holy Spirit, we would seek, we would be willing, we would be obedient to set things right. Lord, maybe this morning we have to set things right with a spouse. Maybe things have not been right for a long time. Maybe it's not been right for just a night. Maybe it was just an argument yesterday. But some something has to be set right. Maybe, Lord, it is that something has to be set right with a child or a grandchild or somebody else in the family. Maybe, Lord, something has to be set right with someone who took terrible advantage of us, who hurt us, who wronged us. But we ask you, Lord, help us. Grant us grace. Show us what we must do. Lord, help us to be obedient so that healing, restoration, grace, oh, that all of this can come. Lord, for people in this world who are struggling with so many things, I pray that they will see the church as a place that is diligent, a group of people that are diligent to set things right in every way. Help us, Lord. Let not pride or our own ambitions or our possessiveness of our material things, let not any of that let not our fears, let not any of what we would think or consider stop us, keep us from setting things right. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.